National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. The Supreme Court ended its term with two religion-related decisions, ruling in favor of religious accommodation and free speech. In a column for the Register, Andrea Pachati Bayer notes that these SCOTUS decisions come at a time when our president and many of our nation's lawmakers are hostile to traditional religious belief. And Andrea explains the court's decision and relevance for any believer and the common good here on Register Radio. Then we turn to decisions at the Vatican. Last week, Pope Francis announced a new head for the Dicastery for the Doctrine of Faith. He elevated his fellow Argentinian, Archbishop Victor Manuel Fernandez. And Edward Penton has reporting and analysis on this appointment. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, who's in Rome right now. And Matthew, as we all know, has a, a new title, Vice President of EWTN News and the editor, Editorial Director. I can't let it roll off my tongue yet, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> We're all getting used to it. You're all getting used to your various titles over these years. It's okay. Well, Andrea Pachati Bayer joins us now. She's the director of the Conscience Project, and she's been a longtime analyst of all things Supreme Court for the Register and EWTN News. Andrea, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great time to be able to talk about these great victories for religious freedom. Absolutely. We were hoping for these, I, I should say. I mean, and we do report the news no matter how, how it turns out, but we were hoping for these uh, decisions. And of course, there are two of them, so we'll try to get through the highlights of these. Um, the first one is Groff versus DeJoy. Uh, it came down last Thursday. And I'll give a brief summary, and you can tell us why it's important. So it was involved a former mailman in rural Pennsylvania who was a Sabbatarian Christian and therefore unable to work on uh, the Sabbath. Um, he was not given accommodations at his uh, postal job um, for, uh, to observe his religious practice. And uh, lower courts ruled against him, but the Supreme Court ruled in his favor. Andrea, why did they do so? Well, first off, I want to say that unlike often um, these decisions in the Supreme Court these days where you see a division between the more conservative and liberal justices, this was a unanimous decision by the it's court. And crazy. I think that that's <laughs> a, it's, it's, it's crazy wonderful because it really does show that the judiciary is working as far as giving mm -hmm. life and effect to, in this case, um, the federal law out prohibiting uh, discrimination in employment. That's called Title VII. And all of the justices um, sided with Justice Samuel Alito, who folks may remember was the author of last year's decision striking down Roe versus Wade. And Justice Alito basically said Title VII specifically requires an accommodation unless it would be an undue hardship for an employer. And the court then traced out what that means. And, and prior to this decision, courts, lower courts and employers had been confused to think that it meant just anything more than a, a trifle, a de minimis expense. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, it's got to be a significant burden or a, an expense. Otherwise, covered employees have to accommodate religious practices of their employees. So 
you wrote in your piece, which is, is titled Supreme Court Rules in Christian Mail Carrier Case, Employers Must Accommodate Religious Practices. That can be found at ncregister.com. And you wrote how the court, in its opinion on this ruling, ad- addresses some, quote-unquote, reoccurring issues. I found that part of your piece to be pretty fascinating because, you know, these things are come up from time to time and they come up for certain reasons. And let's just, please describe for us what some of these reoccurring issues were around workplace and accommodations. Well, in this case, in Gerald Groff's case, one of the reasons why his postmaster didn't continue to accommodate his scheduling needs not to work on Sunday was the opposition and the grumbling of his coworkers. They wanted to have Sundays off as well, but they wanted to have so for other reasons, not related to their religious beliefs and the practicing the demands of their religion. Um, and the, the Supreme Court oftentimes refrains from kind of going beyond the case at hand, but in this case, addressed for the lower courts, we're going to be looking at Groff's case um, on remand, that you can't look at animosity to a particular religion or even to religion in general as a hardship that's undue. And as, as society and the American workforce becomes less and less connected to religious practice, this kind of guidance is going to become more important moving forward. Yeah, uh, Andrea, as I recall, back in, I think it was June of 2021, the, the Supreme Court favored, what, 9 nothing in favor of um, a Catholic adoption agency that had been excluded from Philadelphia's foster program. So this isn't the first... Nine nothing ruling in favor of religious liberty, but it does denote a, a trend. How important is it that in a case like this, it is nine to nothing? You know, I think it's important not only for you know all precedent is binding, but I think it's important because it's a reminder to all the affected parties of the significance and the preeminence of religious freedom under our laws, and especially when you're dealing with workplace dynamics. Religion is a protected category, and discrimination against employees based on their religion or a failure to accommodate their religious practices is part of our law. So it's important that all of the justices were behind this. You know, the employer in this case was the federal government because it was the post office, and it's an important reminder to the Biden administration that in the workplace, whether you're a federal employee or a private employee for a covered employer, that religion matters. And Congress has said it, the courts are going to uphold it, and better that we get things right off the bat rather than waste precious judicial resources fighting through this, these kinds of conflicts. You know, one of the things that I think we Christians all need to note is is something that Father Roger Landry uh, wrote for the Register, and, and he wrote about having the courage uh, to live as a Christian. And in this case, he wrote about living Sunday as a Christian, taking it as an opportunity to to re- remind us about that commandment, to, to keep holy the Sabbath, and that, that that is a fundamental part of our of our uh, Judeo-Christian faith. And um, in that it's, um, these accommodations can really only come when a Christian, a Catholic, is following their beliefs and and doing it uh, consistently. 
No, Jeanette, I think that Father's commentary was really an important reminder to us as Catholics that not only we need to be living that out, but encouraging our children, the people around us, that we're going to back them up um, in living their faith and in a coherent way, that their faith is something that goes beyond the, the parking lot of the parish. Mm-hmm. Right, that's what it's all about, right? This, um, this kind of... Um these battles, when they they make it all the way to the Supreme Court, are exactly about that. It's it's living out that faith in the public square. So the second case we really want to hit upon in the last part of this segment is uh, the one involving 303 Creative versus Alenis. And uh, this is a, a another victory for religious liberty, um, one that we've been watching here. Um, I, I think you wrote a piece, Miss, Mrs. Smith, uh, Miss Smith goes to Washington. It was a great, a great piece, kind of um, chronicling uh, Lori Smith's, uh, a Christian website designer, her desire to um, expand her her uh, design um, practice to uh, wedding wedding websites, uh, but she didn't want to be forced to create wedding uh, web uh, web page right for a a same-sex wedding, and uh, she felt that the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act would require her to do so, so she she made created a preemptive um, uh, case, basically, um, trying to protect herself from having to do something. Um, it made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, lower court said she could not. Um, uh, she would have to create these websites, but the, the Supreme Court said she didn't. So why? Um, again, uh, why were, was she vindicated? You know, it's interesting. Unfortunately, the court's decision in this case, although it was in favor of Lori Smith, wasn't unanimous. I think it should I was going to ask been. you about and that. Reading, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Reading, reading Justice Neil Gorsuch's majority opinion, it really shows that this is there's a long-standing precedent that the Supreme Court has against what's called compelled speech. The government can't force Americans to speak against their beliefs. And that was what the state of Colorado threw kind of a weaponized application of the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, which is a, a public accommodations law, very broadly worded, was going to do unless the Supreme Court intervened. And this is, again, fundamental constitutional principles of free speech. It, it's not limited to uh, religious exercise, and the court didn't look at her free exercise interest, just did it on a straight-up free speech issue. Um, but it does show, again, that in these culture clashes, there's space to recognize and respect the beliefs and the conscience rights of individual Americans, and at the same time, allow for a vibrant exchange of goods and services. We just can't do it at the expense of forcing people to produce and use their creative talents against their beliefs. This case is um, the kind of case that we kind of expect to see, um, unfortunately, kind of over and over again, (laughs) um, as um, the country grapples with same-sex marriage and, and... 
has to figure out how to live in in a in a society that has legalized this while a good portion of its citizenship citizenry <laughs> um does not actually believe um that is possible um according to god's law right um so what does this mean for future cases of this kind of clash is this a precedent setting kind of ruling you know Jeanette, i do think it's you know, any decision from the Supreme Court sets precedent. And I think it's precedent-setting in the context of these conflicts related to same-sex, uh, the recognition by the Supreme Court of same-sex marriage. But I also think it should be a guide for future conflicts. And we can see in the context of other progressive ideologies like gender ideology, the demand for uh, preferred pronouns being recognized this is an important stopgap. You know, this is kind mm-hmm. of saying, wait a second, you, the government cannot, no matter where its policy preferences may lie, can't put words into people's mouths, and it can't muzzle p- people either. And so um, while people will try to look at um, 303 Creative and, and see it very narrowly, I think it's a general rule that the Supreme Court has been building upon to respect individual freedom wherever you lie on these issues, because that is core to the American experience. And that's a really important lesson for the rest of the world that we don't want to keep sharing. Absolutely. And I want to point to a piece that uh, the Register's publisher, Michael Warsaw, wrote um, for the Register called Creative Fireworks. It was about the 303 creative decision. It was in anticipation of the decision, but... Um, he basically was calling us to to see this as something to be proud of as Americans. Uh, this that the that our country does um, allow for uh, that free speech and protect us um, to, to speak freely, but also it does not compel us to speak certain messages. And so he, like Father Landry, um, invites and encourages Catholics to continue. Uh, to live and speak their convictions in the public square. So I invite you to read Creative Fireworks at ncregister.com as well as Andrea's columns. Thank you, Andrea, for being with us. Jeanette, thanks so much. Thanks, Matthew, too. When we come back, we'll hear from Edward Penton about the latest news at the Vatican. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. If you need your news on the go, read the register online. But if you want to take your time and savor the stories, then subscribe to the National Catholic Register's print edition. And with award-winning Catholic journalism that goes beyond what you'll find from any secular news service, you'll get the real story behind the events that unfold over the course of the year. Try the register for free today and get it delivered to your home, office, or parish. Join the Catholics who depend on the Register for its faithful and courageous reporting. Get six issues free today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. 
Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register. I'm joined here on Register Radio by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, who's EWTN News' VP and Editorial Director. And we're talking about Pope Francis's uh, new appointment um, to the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Of course, that used to be CDF. Now it's the DDF. Uh, the new appointee is Archbishop Victor Manuel Fernandez, his longtime personal theologian and ghostwriter. Uh, he's an Argentinian, just like Pope Francis, and he's replacing uh, the Jesuit Cardinal Louis Ladaria, uh, who has been prefect since 2017. Fernandez has been the Archbishop of La Planta, Argentina, since 2018, and he's written over 300 works. So, Edward, uh, welcome back to Register Radio. It's been a little while, and now we've got an important bit of news. This <clears throat> wasn't a surprise um, for some, although it was a surprise <laughs> that he was appointed to this position. He's known at the Vatican, right? You have been reporting on Fernandez for quite some time. That's right. Yes, I mean he was very. He became to prominence really during the synod on the family because he he was a participant of that, but he also um, was a close advisor to the Pope and then was instrumental in drafting uh, his post-synodal apostolic exhortation on that those two synods, uh, Amoris Laetitia. And he was also responsible really for the the most controversial, if you like, aspects of that document, admitting uh, civilly remarried divorcees to Holy Communion. So he is well known in that regard, but is, as you say, he's got quite a prolific uh, number of works behind him. He's He's well known in Argentina, too, for his theology. Many listeners probably know he's also um, known for his controversial theology, too, um, and not just on Amoris Laetitia, but on other things. Um, and that that's also uh, comes out in some of his works, too. So there is concern about him and what he might do in that position. But, right. Uh, well, we'll so get to that. The, yeah, we'll get to yeah. that in a minute, because I do, I mean, these concerns are serious. Um, but we, we want to start with where the Holy Father is coming from with an appointment like this. And it is, um, it's not a surprise he would rely on Fernandez because he has throughout his pontificate. But appointing him to this position came with a letter, <laughs> um, which, is not, which is rare. That doesn't usually happen, which really explains why he picked him. What are the highlights? Why does the Pope say he picked this archbishop? Right. Well, they're both very much of the same mind. And I think one of the aspects of that letter, which which he emphasizes, is that he doesn't want the congregation or the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith to be focused on correcting errors. He wants it more to be about evangelization, if you like, and to help uh, bring the faith, be uh, let the faith be free, if you like, to, to all kinds of ideas and scholarship. And so he, he wants that to be sort of freed up. This is this is seen as a, a obviously a problem because there's been the traditional um, uh, task of, of the dicastery. It is the doctrine to defend the church's doctrine, and so if it doesn't actually defend the doctrine from error, uh, you have to wonder well what is the, the dicastery about? And I think many see as an odd and concerning aspect of that letter, and so but it's very much in line with what. Archbishop Fernandez thinks too. I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't want this sort of hammering down of of heresy, which is what it used to be about. It used to be the Holy Office, the Holy Office of the Inquisition, and he he wants it to be much much different. And um, they're both very much of that view. 
Uh, Edward, uh, in light of uh, one of the, the controversies that's erupted, and that is uh, from the organization Accountability, uh, bishopaccountability.org, that expressed its <laughs> concerns uh, yeah. regarding this appointment and uh, his the, the question that they raise about his commitment to uh, the clergy sexual abuse eradication when he was Archbishop in La Plata. But in that letter that Pope Francis sent, he also stresses that uh, a new prefect is not really to be focused on uh, the abuse cases because there's now a whole section for that. In light of the accusations uh, that he has uh, responded to, I think very forcefully, but also in light of the letter, what are we to make then of his role as prefect uh, because he is in charge of the church's, much of the church's response to sexual abuse? Yes, well, as you say, Matthew, that, that role has been taken from him. It, it's usually the, the role of the, the prefect to deal with that. Um, but there, are, there is this case overshadowing him, which where he's been accused of, of not really handling a case well, that he's defended the priest and, and didn't listen to the victims, although his, his, his diocese denies this. He's wanting to reform uh, the church's doctrine in the same way that Francis does, Using synodality, of course, and a lot of people think that that I spoke to at least that think this this appointment really is to do with the synod, the synod on synodality, first of all, and that he'll be taking a, a lead role in that um, because he'll probably become a cardinal within the year, um, and then he can take a, a senior role in the uh, participatory role in the synod, uh, and that's that seems likely. So, um, but it, it's all about. Um, trying to, I think, change pastoral practice on a lot of key points of church teaching, particularly regarding um, uh, 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 homosexuality. And he's, um, he's wanting to, to spearhead that with the Pope. And uh, to do that, they're trying to change the church's pastoral practice. Um, and critics say, well, that's just a means of trying to change the church's teaching without changing it. And this has been a a sort of dynamic that's existed since since 2013 and throughout all of the synods. Um, and because he's been so closely connected with those synods and been an advisor to the Pope for so long, uh, and he's been giving this kind of advice to the Pope, uh, I think the Pope wanted him by his side um, as head of the doctrinal office during, the, during this time. It's a very significant time for him with the synod concluding next year. Right. Yes, Edward, what seems to happen when people talk about this pas- changing pastoral practice versus, and you didn't say the word doctrine, but changing doctrine, right? And there mm. seems to be that in these kind of conversations, there's a, what I would say is a false dichotomy between pastoral practice and doctrine. And yet I, it seems like someone in who argues in his position um, that there's needs to be changes in pastoral practice that um, they keep pointing to this dichotomy between the two. And this is really where the rub is. I mean, do they, does he want to go as far as the German synod, uh, synodal path, you know, Um, or is there some other practical way of, of uh, keeping within the doctrine and yet, um, helping people to understand in a in a better pastoral way, you know, that's yet to be seen. But that seems to be the biggest question that we're talking about here, 
And uh, I, I guess the Synod on Synodality will help us determine that. Um, mm-hmm. Before we go, yeah, I mean, I don't want you to go into that because we've got to wait and see, I suppose. But um, you sure. did write a piece, uh, Cardinal Mueller confirms Vatican doctrinal office had a file warning about Archbishop Fernandez. And this was uh, an article we published this week at ncregister.com, and it speaks about something that happened several years ago. Um, what was this uh, doctrinal warning, I guess warning, <laughs> from the, the former CDF about um, uh, Fernandez? Yes. Well, this uh, relates to uh, a number of things that he had written, uh, which was sent to Rome. He doesn't say who by, um, but the but then the Vatican investigated it, and then delayed uh, officially making him rector of the Pontifical University of Buenos Aires, the Catholic University in Buenos Aires, and that's that apparently was a, frust- a big frustration to him and to Cardinal Bergoglio, because God, Cardinal Bergoglio. Uh, appointed him to that and there was big frustration that the Vatican delayed it because of this file they had this file on him which um, expressed concerns about uh, these articles that he's written he says that uh, they were they didn't carry much weight and that it was all serenely resolved uh, but at the end but at the same time it, it was a significant um, obstacle to him moving forward Mm-hmm. And in fact, the the Archbishop who who, who put it together, um, uh, he was promoted by Benedict, but then never made a cardinal by Pope Francis. When even though he was in a position that would normally be be made a cardinal, so um, clearly there was some uh, resentment from Pope Francis and Archbishop Fernandez about this file. But it's all been forgotten and brushed under the carpet by them both. I was talking to Cardinal Muller about it. He he confirmed it and he said that uh, uh, that as, as far as the CDF and the Congregation for Catholic Education were concerned, there were serious concerns that, uh, that needed looking at. Right, and when you spoke to or when you got a response from uh, Archbishop Fernandez on this, um, he he did say they were not of great weight, and but he did actually identify that some of this had to do with his writings on marriage, and he had to write back with some points of clarity. Um, and so it it is interesting that that his work in that pastoral realm, in some way, had to be clarified. And I do hope um, you know that what we begin to see more of is just clarification <laughs> of what is sometimes nebulous language or vague language uh, that leads to um, this confusion. And and you know one of the things we got uh, crystal clarity about um, you know doctrine from you know we got that from Cardinal Ratzinger and his role, and um, and that's I think one of the concerns is that you know, sometimes what is coming is is too vague <laughs> and needs um, uh, greater clarity. So, and we really appreciate your reporting on this. Um, our listeners can go to ncregister.com and find Edward's reporting as well as Father Raymond D'Souza who wrote uh, a piece called Pope Francis Finds His Ratzinger. And then we have Chris Smith who wrote something 
um, called the Church's Doctrinal Watchdog is still on patrol. So those are a few pieces you can find at ncregister.com. But there's plenty more news, analysis, and commentary there. So go to the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. And as always, thank you for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and my producer Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and I pray God bless you until next week.